found Locke. Son of a bitch says he's gonna destroy the island. You had it right, Doc. Good news is Desmond got out of that well, so if we can find him before smoke. It doesn't matter if we find Desmond or he does, James. We're all going to the same place anyway. Then what? Then it ends. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at the first part of the series finale, 617, The End. This is the 120th hour of the series, there's one to go. Of course, a couple of reminders, there will be uh, at least three episodes of this podcast coming after next week's episode as uh, I look at the music of the series, uh, the New Man in Charge mini-sode on the DVDs, and then uh, we wrap things up. Also, if you'd like to share feedback now or in the future, you can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com, leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com, or call the listener line 732-707-1815. And speaking of feedback, I wanted to share a tweet that I got from Bo Ford, who asked me, uh, in your opinion, what was the first moment that proves that the Lost writers had a long-term plan? And my response to Bo was that I think that the uh, the introduction of the Admin Eve skeleton certainly shows the desire for a long-term plan from the writers. Um, however, I think that the first, I mean, look, that was put in there for them to one day do something with it. I don't know that it was always intended to be, you know, the, the villain, the monster and his mother, uh, who were linked to the Island, uh, protector. You know, I don't know that that was, I'm all but sure that that was not the plan at the time. I don't know if they had a plan. They just wanted to have something it could be the skeletons of our two heroes who went back in time. It could be somebody from 50 years ago. I think there's some reference to uh, how the clothes have um, have uh, fallen apart or not fallen apart that, that maybe doesn't quite square with the whole 2,000-year uh, period of time. But uh, I said to Bo, I think that the it's probably with the introduction of the hatch where the show... Uh, was settled enough with the fact that J.J. Abrams uh, had left, that uh, Lindelof had uh, you know, realized that he couldn't run the show himself, that he'd gotten Carlton Cuse, that they, you know, kind of the day-to-day, week-to-week running of the show had settled. The fact that it was a hit was, um, was solidified and that they could really look long-term, at least dream to the end of a 20-plus episode season and probably realize at a certain point in the second half of the the production of the first season, uh, I, I don't recall off the top of my head when the when they were officially picked up for a second season, but just to be confident, saying, you know, we have, you know, 15, 18 million viewers. This is all going well. Let's start to do some stuff that we can take uh, for a great season finale, take into season two, and and take things uh, from there. 
Uh, also, a bit of feedback sent in from uh, David in the UK, uh, who says as follows. He said, I really enjoyed your last podcast on what they died for. He said, I would absolutely say go for it for the book idea, not just because it can only be great support material for anyone interested in going deep into Lost, but also because you are a great example of someone who acts on their ideas, and I admire you greatly for that. So I'll pause David's email for for a second just to say thank you uh, so much for those kind words. I'm kind of, as I've been putting together these last, uh, these you know, the podcast for the last two episodes of the series, and uh, the, the the more than considerable prep that I thought it would, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, this finale is, is so absolutely rich in, um, in material. I, I at one point just stopped and said, uh, in one scene that we'll be discussing today, I don't remember which one it was, I said, you know, this was like a 60 second scene and I went and I counted and there were, I just wrote, you know, 250 words on it. Uh, it'll probably take me about as long to analyze the scene as the scene, you know, took place. So um, that said, yeah, I'd like to do the book idea. I'm not quite sure what that venue is. I don't I know nothing about the world of publishing, uh, which I, I I think I would need some sort of help in that regard, given, you know, that my ideas are mine, but, but, you know, pictures, and I don't know to what degree quotes would, would, you know, clearly are not mine, clearly are, are copy written by ABC Studios. So let's get through the end part one and the end part two, and we'll, we'll see what comes of that. Uh, anyhow, David goes on to say, I imagine that for every one person who writes in to say thanks for giving us such a valuable way of connecting with the characters and story of Lost, there are hundreds who feel it, but don't say so. Dave goes on to say, your podcast certainly allowed me to feel it was okay to reflect deeply on a TV show, and what I keep coming back to are two ideas that I cannot really settle on uh, a satisfactory answer to. If you'll pardon me, David, I'll pause your thoughts uh, again. It is absolutely okay to reflect deeply on a TV show. I think particularly if the quality is there, but if you're totally into doing, you know, not you in particular, David, but if there's people out there who are totally into doing the, you know, How I Met My Mother podcast, a show I've never seen, uh, go for it. That's, you know, that's, we live in this wonderful age where it does not cost a lot of money for me to, to, to have the bandwidth and the storage to produce this podcast, given the rate that it's down, downloaded. It's about $2 a week uh, if you, you buy the year up front. Um, as hobbies go, that's not too bad. You could find a way to spend $100 a year uh, or spend $100 period. You know, there are hobbies that can get you, have you spend that a lot quicker. Um, if you want to do a blog on reflecting on a TV show, I mean, you can get a blog spot, uh, you know, a blogger account through Google. You can get that for free. And whoever shows up to read shows up to read. We're in this wonderful age where you can produce your reflections and send them out there and uh you know if you don't mind having an audience in the less than tens or the tens or the hundreds or the thousands you know the audience will come if the audience uh you know will come and um if you're okay with not necessarily being i don't know uh, in contention there with the new york times and the washington post then um you know that then it's absolutely okay to be reflecting uh, on this uh uh, on TV shows, go out there, do it. Do you know? I I encourage everyone 
what I've done over these last 120 episodes. Um, there's been a learning curve. That said, I went back and I listened to uh, the pilot part one podcast, which was which felt short. There were extras, extra ums and uhs and stumbling over my words where I, I would clearly go back now and catch it immediately and re-record it as I as I flubbed. But is there a learning curve? Sure. That said, please, you know, uh, we live we're in a golden age of television right now. I'm not the first one to, to call it that or to note that. There's such excellent long-form television on, even if it's just the long form of a single 13-episode season or an eight-episode season for some of the, the, you know, usually if it's less than 13, it's kind of foreign produced. Uh, but it's a golden age of wonderful, wonderful television. Um, it That's where it's at. As, as we get through this, you know, slug of summer movies that are, you know, I don't know summer season isn't Oscar season, but... You know, I mean, there's there's movies are decreasingly where it's at and, and television is increasingly where it's at. So there's wonderful television to be deeply reflecting on. Anyhow, David's uh, first uh, idea is as follows. The first is the idea of whether what the characters do really matters. Desmond tells Jack that what he does on the island doesn't matter, but Jack is only driven to save the world because he believes it does. Even though the characters all move on to another place, does that diminish what they did in the world of the island? How could it not have mattered if Smokey Locke had escaped and caused the destruction of everything and everyone that Jacob speaks of had happened? The fact is, though all the wounds are healed and crooked places made straight, in the other place. Shannon's death and Saeed's suffering are wiped away. It doesn't really matter that whatever happened, happened. I think we were supposed to feel that in the other place, uh, it would have been the same, even if something else altogether had happened in the real world. On the other hand, perhaps although the real world Desmond has more knowledge of the future that lies ahead of them than Jack, his knowledge is not the perfect knowledge that maybe all of them are moving towards, and that leads him to take the view he does. It certainly makes him deal with uh, pressure situations. David goes on to say, My view is that what Jack does really does matter in that place and at that time, but not when reflected on from the perspective of future Jack or future Desmond. Uh, by future Jack and future Desmond, he's referring to the, the Flash Sideways versions of them. David concludes his first thought by saying, I'm not sure this is really an answer, or I would not keep coming back to it. Well, David, here's my take, and I guess this is uh, as good a time as any to kind of uh, put up the, um, oh, put up the the religious warning flag, if you will. I think that there are aspects of this television program in general, and particularly in this uh, in this episode, where religion has to play a discussion. Um, I'm certainly, you know, as I've said on previous episodes of the podcast, I'm certainly not trying to push a particular religious agenda or point of view. That said, I can't uh, separate my, you know, m my thoughts from uh, the religious knowledge that I do have and, and the way in which, uh, you know, religion has informed popular culture, at least in this country, uh, a, a rather... Um, Muted example comes to mind in uh, Superman Returns, where, uh, you know, despite Brian Singer not being of the Christian faith, we have, you know, the, that's the director, uh, we have uh, Superman dying on a Friday and returning on a Sunday, a very, uh, 
Easter oriented uh, Christian flavoring in there that that cannot be ignored, even though it's not an overtly uh, Christian film or an overtly particularly good one. Um, so I guess, you know, again, if uh, if I think in my I think in neutral analysis, you could find that there's a great uh, Judeo-Christian uh, imprint on the series, um, perhaps as a result of uh, the faith of Lindelof and Cuse, uh, perhaps just them, perhaps just kind of reflecting a general uh, Judeo-Christian impact on American uh, culture in general, even if you're not particularly religious. And when I say you, I don't mean David or, or others in the audience. I mean, you know, let's say even though the creators might not be particularly um religious but i think that uh well david let's answer your question now that we've now that i've kind of given that given that warning um the the notion that the show is putting forward is that there is life after death as we know and that um the show's argument is that there's kind of this this two-stage um two-stage portion to life after death we imagine at the end of the end there they go off to heaven in some sort of unimaginable you know bliss uh but that there is this purgatory is a tad strong there's such a negative phrase you know negative connotation towards purgatory but that there's this in-between place uh where you are dead but don't know it where you kind of need to really you know really get things right really really get your soul squeaky clean or get your get your head on straight or however it is that you'd like to see the flash sideways um and the fact that there is an afterlife the fact that the show is committing to an afterlife the fact that the show is committing to a heaven ultimately at least that's implied i think it would be it's unimaginable that they then walk out toward the light and it's like, you know, oh, welcome to reincarnation or welcome to hell or welcome to, you know, whatever. Uh, but we see the characters in the Flash Sideways uh, really trying to overcome the, the ills that they experienced in life. You know, the fact that Jack is unable to carry on in the Flash Sideways a quality... Uh, romantic relationship with a significant other in this case Juliet in the flash sideways uh, that is reflected or reflective of the life he led where it's just it just never kind of you know never kind of um, that was not a priority for him he didn't know how to work it correctly and it takes him uh, being able to reflect on his entire life with the people who mattered most uh, in order to really find what what love is both romantic and and platonic um so i think that or, or similarly you mentioned saeed you know saeed perhaps lived one of the most awful lives of our heroes and was perhaps one of the most conflicted if not the most conflicted uh, uh people in the entire show and somebody who profoundly felt the the nature of his sins throughout his life uh, leading, I would argue, to to his intentional death. I wouldn't quite call it suicide, but I think that he just said he looked at the blood on his hands, metaphorically, when he was in the sub, compared to the the lesser blood on everyone else's hands, and said, "Well, darn it, at least let it be for something." And he's the one that took took the hit, took the explosion. 
Um, so yes, I think that the show is arguing that what you do in this life does matter because Jack, for all the, the, the beating up I've given him throughout the series, Jack is ultimately a good and a caring person. Somebody who, who has to spend the last three years of his life, which is to say that, you know, over the course of the series, uh, slowly understanding his selfish nature, slowly needing to learn humility, needing to, to, to get over the, the wounds uh, caused by his father and so forth. And um, the person that he is when he dies, uh, I think that's what, you know, and here we're kind of quickly getting into um, religious supposition. But I think that the person who Jack is when he dies is the person who is uh, prepared to move on, who is prepped to move on, where it only takes whatever amount of time they are all together in the flash sideways. Whereas you have somebody like Anna Lucia, who is so much more conflicted, who, who, who apparently will take more time in that place to be able to um, get over the, her, her more substantial demons. So I hope that that was uh, both a quality answer and one not one not overly uh, religious. Anyhow, David, let's go on to your second question. What is uh, quickly becoming a long podcast? Can you uh, can you sense, dear listeners, that maybe these episodes indeed should have been split into two because to have a two or three hour podcast for the finale probably would not be not be well. Not be fun would be a monumental task to get out. Indeed, I'm recording this early because I think there's going to be plenty of uh, editing and mixing and all that to do. But anyhow, David, here's your second uh, point. The second is whether the new characters in The Flash Sideways are real in the sense that they have also come to that place to learn something or whether they are all simply creations designed to allow the, quote, real characters to move on. Are even the bad guys who appear in The Flash Sideways, Kimi, etc., uh, there, just uh, as faces on marionettes, when Christian Shepherd says the Flash Sideways world uh, is a place you made so you could find each other, it seems very personal to the characters rather than a universal grand central station for all loved ones. Let's pause you there, David. As as an American and an East Coaster, I must correct you. It's Grand Central Terminal, but that's a mistake that is often made, indeed. But anyhow. Certainly doesn't. I don't mean to take away from your point that is this a universal meeting place for all loved ones, uh, not just the characters in Lost, to be reunited after their earthly demise. I like to think that even young David Shepard will one day have his own Desmond Hume to tell him he never had a father before he moves on, and that even Martin Kimi might find his own way to leave. Well, maybe not Kimi the rascal. David, this is a a, a wonderful question. Uh, in the past, in previous episodes of the podcast, I certainly have suggested the marionette theory, as you call it, uh, that perhaps we do have, perhaps, I want to stress, some mindless automatons there, perhaps, you know, reflections of the subconscious. Um, I think pr probably the most uh, accurate answer would be there simply is not enough evidence given by the show for us to be... Uh, for us to be sure. Uh, however, people like Kimi, who indeed exist, did exist in the real world, and whose lives were greatly impacted by the people that he interacts with in The Flash Sideways, I think that is suggestive 
uh, of Kimi actually existing in the Flash Sideways world. Same thing with Anna Lucia. Uh, the great impact in her life, um, ironically just as Kimi, resulting in her death, um, that she is there, uh, that we have some of these other characters, you know, uh, Liam, Charlie's brother, so on and so forth. Um, here's my take. And this might be, this might quickly be, oh, I don't know, being able to, you know, cognitive dissonance, might, having two opposite thoughts uh, simultaneously. When Christian says this is a place you made so you could find each other, here's kind of the mental image I have. I have it as uh, an island on the ocean, no island pun intended, um, but this place that they have made, that is to say, is kind of like an island on the ocean. You can get to it. You can leave it. There are other islands out there that other people have made. Perhaps other people's Los Angeleses are on top of existing simultaneously with uh, those of the 815 people. Um, maybe Anna Lucia has her foot in uh, uh, multiple places that others have made. You know, perhaps uh, if she had, uh, oh, I don't know, come across Libby, in the flash sideways or come across michael who i know is not there because of the the evils he has caused if she had come across somebody who was a bit more significant um sawyer perhaps you know it, it, perhaps they would have crossed paths in a way that would have uh awakened her however maybe she needs to come across her mother or uh the man who shot her or you know someone else um it's you know I think it's not unreasonable to assume that you can you can occupy multiple places that have been made to find each other. Um, again, the show offers us little um, in, in the way of evidence or in the way of truly understanding the nature of this place. That's the that's the the, the writer's um, right, if you will. That's that's their ability to say, well, we designed this place to be vague and to meet. The story need, story need number one is we want you to wonder for 16 and a half, 17 and a half episodes what this place is exactly before we quickly tell you and then wrap things up five minutes later and that's at the end. Um, it's, their, it's their right to do that. And I don't find myself particularly needing to know more, although David, I certainly agree with your questions here. Um, David concludes by saying sincere thanks again for a great show you know i only came to the podcast pretty late in the day had i been there with you from the beginning i feel uh i might feel the approaching conclusion even more strongly i will miss my weekly fix and hope you continue to move on to new and better things kind regard david rhodes so thank you david i think the wonderful thing about the world of podcasting is it is uh rather like the flash sideways outside time and uh, I, I'm sure one day I'll receive an email from somebody who's just found the podcast, you know, uh, this being after the podcast has concluded. Uh, that's great, too. As I've said many times before to everyone, the email will remain open. The Twitter will, will remain open. The, the Web page will remain open. And for as long as Google Voice is given away, that phone number, the phone number will remain open. So, friends, with that... Are you still with me? 24 minutes right now into the episode. Uh, should we talk about this episode proper? 
Indeed we shall. Let's start, of course, as always, with the Wikipedia summary for the episode, which starts like this. Jack, Kate, and Hurley head to the heart of the island, while Sawyer goes after Desmond, who was thrown into a well. Arriving there, Sawyer is confronted by Ben Linus and the man in black, who reveals his plan to destroy the island. Sawyer then steals Ben's rifle and reunites with Jack's group. Jack then tells Sawyer that he plans to confront the man in black. At the same time, Desmond, having been rescued by Rose and Bernard, is confronted by the man in black. The man in black threatens to kill Rose and Bernard if Desmond does not come with him, and he complies, provided the man in black leaves the couple unharmed. Meanwhile, Miles finds a no longer ageless Richard in the jungle, and they set out by boat to destroy the Ajira plane, which would allow the man in black to escape. Along the way, they rescue Frank Lapidus, who had survived the destruction of the submarine, and they decide to leave the island by using the plane. On the way to the heart of the island, Jack's group encounters the Man in Black's group. Jack tells the Man in Black that he is going to kill him, and together with Desmond, they can travel to the heart of the island. Jack believes that Desmond can kill the Man in Black because he thinks Jacob brought him back not as bait, but as a weapon. Desmond tells Jack that destroying the island and killing the Man in Black do not matter because he is going down to the heart of the island and leaving for another place. Jack and the man in black lower Desmond down to the heart, and he reaches a chamber, leading to a glowing pool with an elongated stone at its center. Immune to the pool's electromagnetic energy, Desmond manages to remove the giant stone stopper at the center of the pool. However, the light goes out, and the pool dries up, setting about the destruction of the island which the man in black predicted. A result of Desmond's act is an unforeseen side effect, making the man in black mortal again. In Flash Sideways, Christian Shepard's coffin finally arrives to Los Angeles, and Desmond signs for it. Kate questions his intentions, but he tells him that he is her friend, and he wants to leave. When asked where to, he promises to show her, and dries off. Elsewhere, Hurley arrives with Saeed at a hotel, and Hurley shows him a tranquilizer gun to make him remember their previous adventure. When he doesn't remember, Hurley goes to a hotel room and uses the gun on Charlie who refuses to go to the concert. They put an asleep Charlie in the Hummer. Arriving at the concert, Miles sees Saeed and warns James Ford. He tells him to check on Sun Pike, who is at the hospital. At the hospital, Sun is next to Jin in her bed when Juliet enters and performs an ultrasound. This makes Sun remember when Juliet made her an ultrasound on the island, and Jin remembers as well. Now speaking English, they tell Juliet that their baby is fine, and that Ji Yan is her name. Meanwhile, Jack checks John before his operation and tells him that fixing him will bring him peace. Afterwards, Jack meets with Juliet, his ex-wife, and says to his son, David, that Claire can go to the concert in his place. Hurley has taken Saeed outside a bar, where they watch a fight between two men and a woman. Saeed helps the woman, who is Shannon, and they remember their life on the island. Boone says to Hurley that it wasn't easy to bring her from Australia, but Hurley says it was worth it. In the concert, Charlie has passed out, but Charlotte wakes him up where he meets with Daniel Widmore. Meanwhile, Claire recognizes Kate, and Pierre Chang introduces the band. Claire has a contraction, goes backstage, and Kate follows her. And again, I have, uh, I have separated the finale into two episodes, uh... Two podcast episodes uh, the finale does not appear as uh, as two episodes at least uh, on netflix 
Uh, this is roughly to the 46-minute mark. Uh, the, the act, uh, you know, t I take it to the end of the act, which occurs at, at roughly the 46-minute mark. So uh, judging by the fact that we have yet to properly talk about this episode, and we are now at the 28-minute mark, I, I think that was probably a good, uh, good decision on my part. So apologies if you're sitting here going, oh, I wish, I wish it was all here at once. Next week, friends, next week. Anyhow, now let's talk about this episode. We have a previously on Lost, and I kind of felt like, seriously, do people need to catch me up at this point? Well, the show gives it. Jack made protector, Smokey Locke trying to find Desmond and looking out to destroy the island, and sideways Des rounding up some of our heroes. The series finale starts with the camera right against a plane. So fittingly, an oceanic plane, the camera twisting up and around to show the sky, then the cargo unloader. The show doesn't overly sell what we see. It's Christian's coffin, albeit in its cardboard container. There's a quick cut to sideways Jack's office, a picture of father and son and grandson. Then the show starts to montage to Island Jack, inspecting his hands, his newly powerful hands. Then things pick up as we see Smokey Locke scheming and Sideways Locke pre-surgery. Good Sideways Ben making tea and conflicted Island Ben wondering if he should indeed be with the smoke monster. Detective Ford looking at himself in that smashed mirror. Island Sawyer helping Kate clean her wound. And Sideways Kate impatiently parked outside a church. The church can only just jump out at us as repeat viewers. The church where the series will conclude in one hour and 40 minutes of viewing as the cargo van arrives. Now, not sure that you're on board with my Desmond as Christ metaphor? Well, we get the first line of the finale. Do you need somebody sign for that? You work here? I do indeed, brother. You priest or something? Or something. Do you mind taking it around the back now? Yeah, sure, you got it. He works in the church, but not as a priest. Sure, he's implying to the oceanic worker that he's an unordained layperson. Yet, the final flash sideways from last week, being a fisher of men when it came to Said and Kate, having them join his apostle Hurley, it all comes together with a convincing result. Indeed, the reference to who died, Christian Shepherd, gets a giggle from Kate. It seems to her to be a rather in-your-face name. I'd argue that with Desmond not laughing at the name, that that is only further proof that he feels a sort of kinship to the man, that he too feels to be a Christian shepherd of sorts. With that, Kate gives a little bit of recap. He broke me out, had me wear the dress, we're headed to a concert. But it is Desmond who spells out the thrust of the finale, who clearly states the objective of the plot. It's just the first time viewers, just like those unaware of the Flash Sideways dream world, can't see what he's doing. No one can tell you why you're here, Kate. Certainly not me. You're the one who brought me here. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about here. Who are you? 
What do you want? My name is Desmond Hume. And even though you don't realize it, I'm your friend. And as for what I want, I want to leave. Leave and go where? Let me show you. keep asking myself how in the world did I not see where things were headed back when I watched this episode in 2010 how is it that when I watched it the Monday after it aired I fittingly waited in a spoiler free environment so that I could watch it with my family so that we could move on together if you will that how is it that I did not see this moment as a big red flag that they're in some sort of place where they are friends, where they want to move on? It certainly is a credit to the writing to be sure that that it's both there and not there, that it's moving just fast enough that you can't quite process it, but moving slow enough that, fair warning, we're at a point so early on in the first act that they're spelling out where the plot is headed. Anyhow, the story moves on, as it so often has this season, from a sideways character to their island version. This time, across Kate, who, on the island, finds Jack standing in the water, his back to her. It's a wonderful image, one evocative of baptism and shot at a bit of a distance so that Jack seems both plain and separated from our other characters. And it's an excellent acting moment, if not, you know, if, if a little one, for Evangeline Lilly, too. The, she looks at him and is disappointed. Kate, too, can sense that Jack is now so very different. With that, Sawyer arrives with a touch of meaningful exposition exchanged. Namely, Jack doesn't feel different. Yet Sawyer, too, can see something has changed as evidenced by Sawyer's braggadocio and saying, quote, why don't you come down off the mountain and tell us what the burning bush is saying, close quote. Behind the bravado, however, Sawyer's intent is clear. You can see it on his face. He wants leadership. He wants guidance. And he recognizes Jack as, as being infinitely qualified to give that now. With the idea that both Kate and Sawyer uh, that they're able to see that Jack is different. I couldn't help but notice that that seems to mirror what so many characters have seen in Smokey, identifying in the latter a sense of being a thing, a twisted creature, despite his looking just like Terry O'Quinn. Here, our characters have the, the sense of Jack still looking the same, yet out of the corner of their eyes, they see what occurred to Jack when he drank from the cup, which, by the way, itself is obviously a very communion-like activity. Anyhow, Jack's explanation and the discussion that follows is itself some direct plot outlining. The heart of the island must be protected, Locke wants Desmond, and, as Hurley points out, Jacob's instructions are more vague than those of Yoda. With Sawyer off to find Desmond and Jack, Kate and Hurley off to the source and the act ends well rather on a, on a rather flat note if you get the joke it ends with hurley saying i've got a bad feeling about this it is of course a direct lift from the star wars films and 
If you don't know that, then I think the act end is appropriately dark. If you do get the joke, it kind of feels like our beloved show has just ended its first act with a joke. Anyhow, we get the title card, then a long, sweeping crane shot, which ultimately reveals Hurley's iconic SUV pulling into a sideways motel. Saeed and Hurley inside uh, a moment that feels so evocative of Oceanic Six, Saeed Hurley on the run, having adventures. And at this point, the show goes right there. Hurley asking Saeed if being at a motel with a tranquilizer gun rings any bells. It appears to be played for laughs, but it shows something that first-time viewers, I think, half know, that Hurley has awakened to the true and full nature of this place. I mean, again, that's that that's obvious, but I think it warrants, you know, it's it is a nice reminder. It is something, you know, that that saves us from going over that on previously on Lost. But it's just so wonderful that Hurley has likely been told off camera by Desmond that such a moment of of awakening and understanding must come naturally and organically and powerfully. So what's Hurley doing? There he is trying to coax it out of Saeed. After all, from sweet Hurley's point of view, surely one of Saeed's best memories must have been the Hurley and Saeed adventures in L.A., right? Anyhow, Hurley's big smile continues as he knocks on the door of the motel room. And there's Charlie, Charlie, looking downright awful with his too short hair, desperately pale British skin, black nail polish on his fingers, perhaps a touch of mascara, and a bottle of booze in his hand. Indeed, as the camera cuts to inside the room, there's many a bottle of booze. Hurley here is clearly overcome with happiness at seeing his old friend. Let's not forget that it's likely been many, many lifetimes since the island protector Hurley has seen Charlie, uh, you know, since Charlie left for the Looking Glass station. Uh, protector of the island and other doctrines indeed. When sweet, happy truths don't convince Charlie, Hurley just mans up and shoots him with a tranquilizer dart. Again, it's played for comedic effect, uh, what with Hurley squinting through one eye and almost cowering as he squeezes the trigger, but he shoots him, he takes action, he takes the necessary action when clearly there's no other alternative. The only funnier thing, by the way, is Saeed's reaction as Hurley flops Charlie into the Hummer. Naveen Andrews has little dialogue to challenge him as an actor in this scene, uh, he's just got to remain kind of sullen and arms crossed Saeed. And Naveen Andrews doesn't overact his shock, but it is somehow just absolutely hilarious as the actor swings for the fences with what must be just, just this incredibly absurd moment. You know, guy comes out with another guy knocked out or dead or what's going on, you know. And he's just so shocked, it's humorous, and and as I said... You know, here Naveen Andrews is swinging for the fences despite the easy pitch of just kind of be sullen and shocked. Anyhow, with that, back to the island where Jack admits that he took the job of island protector because he was supposed to, which seems awfully Jack. It's awfully annoying, almost reminiscent of season one Jack in terms of 
I'm in charge because I've got to be in charge, not because I'm the best, humble brag, but because I'm the best right now, humble brag. To be fair, the following line does temper that uh, self-anointed God-doctor spirit. He notes that he needs uh, the island because he's ruined everything else in his life. And, you know, again, also to be fair, that was a quality that Jacob was looking for. But, boy, you know, the next time you go into the voting booth, will you be looking for the guy or gal who needs this job because they've ruined everything else? I don't think so. Anyway, with that, the story moves to Smoky Lock, coiling that rope up from the well. It is also, by the way, just a, a nice little moment to confirm he's taking the rope, he's keeping the rope. That's where the rope will appear from a bit later in the episode. The shot widens to Sawyer watching from afar, right before Ben catches him. Indeed, the shot of Sawyer watching Smokey makes it look... Uh, you know, that, that the two are, are separated by quite a distance. But the reverse angle of that, Smokey watching from the well, as Ben and Sawyer uh, come, you know, come out from behind the, uh, the bush, it makes it seem that Sawyer is almost, almost hiding behind the only close bush. It, it's not the best blocked scene that there is. They're probably dealing with real plants that are actually there. So it's not that they linger on it, but there's kind of this moment where it's like, from Sawyer's point of view, when he's right behind the bush, oh, all you can imagine is there's you know plenty to hide behind. Then when you switch, it's like, yep, there's kind of like a five-foot bush over there, and there's a guy behind it. Anyhow, what comes next is, at its most basic, a sharing of information between characters. And this is usually pretty boring, you know, kind of having an episode start with, I'm so sad because Boone died 10 minutes ago, which was last week's episode, so I need to remind you of it. Things like that. However, here, with the shifting story sands, it's absolutely worthwhile. You're going down with the ship. Suicide doesn't seem like your style. I'm not going down with anything. But you and the rest of Jacob's little candidates absolutely are. We're not candidates anymore. Oh, oh! I'll be seeing you. You're not gonna go after him? I don't need to. When you said you were gonna destroy the island, I thought you were speaking figuratively. Because I said I'd leave you in charge once I was gone? I'm sorry if I left out the part about the island being on the bottom of the ocean. That being said, you're welcome to join me on my boat. Because once we get Desmond to do what we need him to do, I'm gonna sail away from this godforsaken place and watch it sink. I am surprised, very surprised, that when Smokey makes references to the island sinking, there's no Giacchino string slide to remind us, oh crud, we saw the island sunk in LAX. It certainly jumped out uh, to me that way, that the destruction of the island might be, as suggested by the story at this point, via sinking. You know, that, again, if you imagine kind of the, the first-time viewer point of view, not completely understanding the Flash Sideways world, that you still might have a situation where, where the island does sink as we have seen it uh, being sunk at the beginning of the, the season. However, the show doesn't go there, kind of overly suggesting it. I wondered, too, why Smokey didn't ask more about why there aren't candidates anymore. 
Sure, it's implied that a replacement was picked, but I just wish the scene gave just a bit more. Perhaps Smokey looking down at himself to suggest that he was re-listening to his senses, that the mystical force which prevented him from attacking candidates is now gone. I don't know that uh, that's how it all works, but it just left me wanting something more. To be fair, the show does give us one heck of a something. Ben bloodied, which is always great fun, and Ben reminded that when you make a deal with the devil, you always lose. The scene also reinforces, and in a very passive way, the story point that Smokey wants to use Desmond in a way that the story has yet to reveal to destroy the island. Anyhow, the scene concludes with the rather direct observation by Smokey that there are dog prints near the well, which takes us to Vincent. We never did get that Vincent flashback, did we? Anyhow, Vincent licking Desmond is where the shot moves to next and waking him up, which allows the camera angle to widen a bit, revealing that it's Rose and Bernard's little camp, though little actually doesn't suggest how nice it is, even despite the bamboo stylings. There's a quick passing line of how they've been here since 1975, they've done all the time jumping, heading off all those fan questions at the pass. Then, more importantly, Rose sets up the forthcoming conflict by explaining that Desmond will have to leave soon, as they don't get involved with the island power struggle ever. Then the island power struggle arrives at their doorstep. Hello, Rose. I'll make this simple. Come with me. Now. Or I'll kill them both right in front of you. You don't have to go anywhere with him. I'll make it hurt. Desmond. You will. Are there any two characters more purely beloved than Rose and Bernard? There certainly are more favorite characters or ones that we know better, but in terms of the purity of heart and mind and soul, for Smokey to threaten them hurts us, amps up the tension to unbelievable heights for us the audience, in such an effective manner. By the way, it's also a good opportunity for him to reinforce that he has the knife. We're going to have it repeated a number of times before the final battle uh, that, he, that he has that knife. And not to sound like a broken record or a looping digital clip, whatever the modern term would be, but once again, Terry O'Quinn's acting here is just so wonderful, menacing and powerful and totally believable as the distillation of island evil. With that, Desmond joins Smokey and Ben, it being rare for Ben to be in the background, though the fact that he's smuggling a walkie-talkie, which is on, is revealed. There's a curious line as well 
where Desmond supposes that the three are going somewhere where there is a bright light. Smokey is confused as to why Desmond would say such a thing, and at first I felt the same way. Yet, let's reflect. Desmond has survived the hatch explosion, a bright light, and that was replicated by Widmore's electromagnetism experiment of bright light earlier in the season. That Desmond would be headed towards a third such encounter isn't just good intuition. It's great writing in the, you know, the, the Western repetition of, of you know, things happening in threes being uh, such an important uh, idea. And speaking of the walkie-talkie, who was on the other side of it? The story moves to Miles. We're slowly establishing the, the scope of uh, both the island and the Flash Sideways world. Uh, the story moves to Miles trying to get Ben on the walkie. Miles has found Richard, who's rather unsurprisingly alive. And after collecting himself, he reinforces his central story mission, at least at the moment, to go to the other island to blow up the plane. Speaking of Miles, we flash sideways to Detective Miles at what he terms wonderfully as his father's museum benefit concert thingy. He sees Saeed in the, the Hummer, owned by Hurley, and actually Miles doesn't do a whole lot about it. To be fair, he, you know, gives Sawyer a call and he does remind both his partner and us that Saeed allegedly killed four people, so Perhaps the guns a-blazing approach isn't the way to go, but still, Miles definitely does underplay it a bit. The scene is just a quick update, though, as Sawyer mentions that the only eyewitness, Son, is still at the hospital, allowing the story to move to Son, still at the hospital. Yep, there they are, Son and Jin, still alive despite the heartbreak of their island deaths. The show deceives us wonderfully, by starting so simply as they talk about Sun being sore and a doctor coming in to check on her baby. Hi, Miss Pike, I'm Juliet Carlson. I'm here to make sure your baby's okay. You must be the daddy. I'm sorry, you don't speak English. I'm. I'll try not to talk too much. I found that Juliet's return is the first near overwhelming moment of the finale, perhaps because her death is still so fresh in our minds. Okay. You lift up your gown a little bit? The pacing in this scene is slow, I think just because we instinctively know where things are headed. The show wants to earn its first awakening of the finale. A little cold. first touch the sound drops out completely a technique used before and Juliet indeed having done this very same thing in the arrow station flashes before our eyes I remember son says there it is there's your baby The show flashes Sun and Jin's greatest hits from across the seasons, and it just works. It profoundly works. It doesn't feel like a series of clips. It's just, it, it, it's, it's a reminder of the emotion that these two characters have brought and our 
our appreciation for their great story arc, how far they've come. And it's just, it's absolutely a sight to behold uh, as, as the show puts it all in front of us. They have your amnio results. Everything checked out. Would you like to know if it's a boy or girl? It's a girl. Her name is Jian. That's a lovely name. And for the record, you do speak English just fine. Congratulations. I have such a distinct memory of watching this for the first time and feeling like I had come to some new understanding, not understanding everything, of course, uh, not even uh, particularly feeling that there was great insight toward the, uh, the world of the flash sideways, but there was just this, this overwhelming sense that things were really and truly starting to come together. I don't know how this flash moment is different than the multiple ones that we've seen before perhaps it's a result of these two characters fully formed in their love being together being frightened at first that the other one doesn't see it then feeling relieved and in love again while they realize that their partner sees and profoundly knows as well it's just a just a remarkable remarkable scene what occurs next after the act break is another rare instance of the show playing better with commercials. If this were a film and the story necessitated having Sawyer running through the jungle, there might have been some sort of transition. The sweet music of Sun and Jin carrying over to a static, quiet shot of the jungle, then Sawyer suddenly running into the frame as the pace and music picks up. But alas... It was built for us to experience a break on our own, and thus it's a bit jarring to have a few seconds of black silence, then cut to mid-shot, Jaquino horns blaring, Sawyer racing through the jungle. If nothing else, though, it does build the pace up nicely as we're forced to switch gears, and Sawyer explodes out of the brush and meets up with Jack, Kate, and Hurley. Information about Smokey's plan is shared, with... The cheap, gimmicky, and ultimately pitch-perfect goose-bumpy Jack line gives at the one-fifth mark of the series finale. Namely, when both factions get to the source, it ends. Picking up pace indeed, with that, Giacchino gives the island walking theme, along with some lovely helicopter shots of the four traipsing across the grasses. With that, we flash sideways to Dr. Jack, talking to Locke right before surgery. It's dripping with double entendre, the height of which is Jack jokingly hoping that he won't have to kill Locke. I think it's meant to be goosebumpy or foreshadowing, but on the heels of the wonderful preceding island scene, it's just a bit talky. That and the catch-me-up moment of Jack telling Locke that Christian's coffin should be there now. It all just kind of combines to feel a little, you know, we need to show that 
these characters or understanding these things. But it's just a bit less impressive. Back to the island, Richard and Miles are preparing to take a canoe over to Hydra Island along with... Richard noting there's a storm coming. Yes, we get it. It's the finale. Big things are going to happen. You needn't sweeten the pot. There's the appropriate and earned update that Richard is now aging. Ostensibly, the death of Jacob has helped uh, remove those immortal coils. But how it is done, I have to call into a bit of question. Miles notices the gray hair on Richard's head, then plucks it from Richard's head. Uh, to show to him. It's a curious decision. I was actually reminded of the first Lord of the Rings film, where the conscious decision was made to have Gimli describe receiving a lock of Gladriel's hair, the description being better than showing something as almost invisible to the camera as a bit of hair. It's a simply curious choice for Miles to say, do you mind? And to reach up to Richard plucking a hair that we cannot see on our HD widescreen TVs. Perhaps it's just a product of the finale being done up against a schedule, but this was the best way to simply capture the moment and move on. Anyhow, move on we do, and they do, as they row, row, row their boat until there's the ominous thunk that has Miles looked down to discover. No, not the shark, but a submariner's body, which is only the beginning as the living Lapidus, wrapped up in more life jackets than one could imagine, is plucked from the sea, hairy chest and all. Here, the story simply cannot hide the usefulness of Lapidus anymore. The story has waited to undead him until the last possible minute, and the idea that they might kill him again for good would simply be cheap. At this point, for the first-time viewer, there's only one possibility that the story can provide at this point, that Lapidus and some other people are taking off on that plane. That is why they've had Lapidus in episode after episode, throwing him a line here and there, mostly paying the capable actor to show up for costuming and makeup and mealtime and transportation, all to be a glorified extra. That he is the ticket home for some of our heroes is the only option available at this point to first-time viewers. It is if you can think that fast before the next scene comes rifling along, which is namely Team Jack and Team Locke cresting opposite sides of the same hill. Good luck digesting the Lapidus stuff with this monumental moment and shot so well by Jack Bender. After the tension is dispelled, by Kate's grabbing a rifle and shooting at the, you know, immortal lock. At least, you know, immortal for the time being. Well, it's not just a scene of spelling out what's ahead, nor is it a knowing wink to the audience that we too are surprised with Jack's ascension, but it's those things and more. So it's you. Yeah, it's me. Jacob being who he is, I expected to be a little more surprised. You're sort of the obvious choice, don't you think? You didn't choose me. I volunteered. I assume you're here to stop me? I can't stop you. In fact, I, uh, I want to go with you. I'm sorry, Jack. I think you're a little confused about what I came here to do. No, I'm not. Now, you're going to the far side of the bamboo forest, to the place that I've sworn that I'll protect. 
and then you think you're going to destroy the island. I think? That's right. Because that's not what's going to happen. Then what's going to happen, Jack? I'm going to kill you. How do you plan to do that? That's a surprise. Okay. Let's get on with it. Again, the sneering condescension shown by Smokey to Jack, the waves between confidence and restrained temper after Kate shoots annoyingly at Smokey, the replacement of apprehension with anger. These are all the things that Terry O'Quinn conjures up in Smokey with this ultimately a rather short scene. It's just amazing what the actor can do with, with so little time. We, of course, get the act break, then Dr. Jack smiling knowingly with Dr. Juliet, who is casually revealed to be the unseen mom to David. Then it's followed up with Juliet's casual reference to having been married to Jack all those years. By the way, I may have implied that we never meet Jack's ex-wife. Oops. This does, of course partially, if not completely, explain why David was wandering around the hospital of his own accord a number of episodes ago, that when Jack had to jump into surgery, uh, David could always just go visit Mom, or perhaps he knew that it was close for her time to leave. Anyhow, we know on Island that the Jack and Juliet romance fizzled. How ironic that here, too, it did the same. What happens next Juliet happily heads to the elevator with David, and they pass uh, Sawyer. I found it just to be jaw-dropping. We we hoped for romance to bloom, but got none of it. At least not yet, anyway. Sawyer is, of course, there to talk to Sun in what is increasingly becoming a well-constructed episode. You're really starting to see how these, you know, disparate. L.A. people are starting to come together in a very uh, real way. Back to the island, Jack admits to Sawyer that there isn't a clear plan on how to kill Locke, uh, but that he hopes Desmond indeed does have a plan. The lack of a good plan is highlighted when Smokey announces at the Bamboo Grove that it should just be Smokey, Jack, and Desmond from here on out, and everyone agrees. By the way, it's a wonderful touch that, as far as we can see, it literally is a 15-second walk uh, to get to the source. We know it's been mystically hidden, uh, but that it's just right around the corner when you're with the island's protector is both underplayed and spot-on. Not underplayed is the crack of thunder which leaves Smokey to say, it's going to be a bad one, while the scene is bathed in beautiful tropical Hawaii sunshine. With that, we cut to a few minutes later with that rope we saw from the well being tied to a tree, then around Desmond, and we get some Desmond wisdom. This doesn't matter, you know. Excuse me? Him destroying the island, you destroying him. It doesn't matter. You know, you're going to lower me into that light. And I'm going to go somewhere else. A place where we could be with the ones that we love. 
and not have to ever think about this damn island again. And you know the best part, Jack? What? You're in this place. You know, we sat next to each other on Oceanic 815. It never crashed. We spoke to each other. You seemed happy. You know, maybe I can find a way to bring you there, too. Desmond, I tried that once. There are no shortcuts, no do-overs. What happened, happened. Trust me, I know. All of this matters. Shall we? It is perfect, absolutely perfect, that Desmond has carried the memories of the sideways with him back here. We should have known that, of course. His interactions with the sideways world, in Happily Ever After, were clearly told linearly. Clearly, albeit quietly, told without the sideways swoosh. Clearly a product of him being pushed there and pulled back while at the stadium. Our great Western stories value things coming in threes. And the great Desmond stories, flashes poor our eyes, the constant and happily ever after, were all told in a straight narrative direction, all for important reasons that are critical to our understanding of the show. Musings aside, it's then time for Desmond to enter the source, and you know we've hardly seen inside the mouth of the cave, uh, but we're there a scant two episodes ago, and this is all further proof that the placement of Across the Sea had the right effect. We immediately can recall our desire to know more, to see more. And the act ends with first Desmond, then Smokey and Jack peering down the waterfall into the golden light of the source. So with that, naturally, it's time for a commercial break, and then resuming the sideways story. Lost is, if nothing, a tease. At the first establishing shot of the bar, ah, it's bliss. It foretells one of the great moments of the entire finale, aside from the last few minutes. Here we have a moment the show dearly, desperately earned, and started to earn way back in LAX, when the entire season one cast was reassembled, save one impossibly busy person. What are we doing here? I'm not allowed to tell you. What do you mean, you're not allowed? There are rules, dude. Whose rules? Don't worry about it. Just trust me, okay? I trust you. And what, may I ask, have I done to deserve your trust? I think you're a good guy, Saeed. I know a lot of people have told you that you're not. Maybe you've heard it so many times you started believing it. But you can't let other people tell you what you are, dude. You have to decide that for yourself. I'm sorry. You clearly don't know anything about me. I know a lot about you, dude. It's like an early fight. Leave my brother alone! 
quite simply perfection. The delayed reveal of Shannon's face, her upturned look at her rescuer, the softly implied double awakening that she recognizes him and only with her love is Saeed able to push aside his sins and find her. Saeed. Shannon. I just got pounded, man. Thanks for taking your sweet time. Takes as long as it takes. It was a pain in the ass getting her here from Australia. Yeah, but dude, it was worth it. Should I go get him? Nah, let's give him a minute. How appropriate that it's Hurley recounting the rules. Hurley, whose job to enforce those island rules would last through the ages. It's also fittingly appropriate on a certain level that Boone doesn't get his grand reveal. Instead, he simply wanders on up to Hurley's Hummer, having had his awakening off screen, ostensibly previous to Shannon's return to the United States. Ian Summerhalder's return to the show is muted, but he of all people perhaps needs the least fanfare. He's always been willing to return, always been willing to do right by the show that nonetheless got rid of him so quickly, always willing to smile to an audience that remains to this day brokenhearted at his exit. Sideways over, Hate and Sawyer share a quiet canteen of water, then Ben's walkie-talkie explodes with Miles saying he's on Hydra Island because, hint, hint, there's a way off the island there. Everyone clear where things are headed? Indeed, on Hydra Island, Crazy Claire turns the corner. Confused as to why a pilot and Jacob's right-hand man are there, she assumes Locke has sent them to kill her. Richard talks her into calming down, and we're sure that we have this one figured out. She'll say she'll go with him and go see Aaron, and that'll be that. But she says no and just kind of wanders off behind the bushes, making the scene rather curious, aside from injecting Claire into the story. But more importantly, back to the source, Desmond says he's off to go where the light is brightest, and Jack and Locke lower him down. It becomes first a highly referential scene, highlighted by the close-ups of hands on rope and the camera looking upwards, giving us hatch-like shots of Jack and Smokey Lock at the edge. Does this remind you of anything, Jack? What? Desmond, going down into a hole in the ground? If there was a button down there to push, we could fight about whether or not to push it. Like old times. You're not John Locke. You disrespect his memory by wearing his face, but you're nothing like him. Turns out he was right about most everything. I just wish I could have told him that while he was still alive. He wasn't right about anything, Jack. And when this island drops into the ocean and you drop with it, you're finally going to realize that. 
The importance of the scene is that Jack has, in a large sense, become a hybrid of his old self and the once living John Locke, that Jack is able to distill here that he's tempered his sense of science and added to it a sense of faith. And then there's that wonderful line, you disrespect Locke's memory by wearing his face. It's just so evocative of the monster beneath. We humans might wear masks at times, but you wouldn't say we wear a face. The image of an actual face covering what is beneath is verbal gold to paint the horrible picture in our minds. We get an act break, then we start what will be the last act for this week's podcast. Claire and David and Yowza, as John Bowman said on Twitter, Liz Mitchell in that dress. She says something or other about, I don't really know, she's in that wonderful, wonderful dress, and then she goes away and it seems like all is awful, but quickly gets better because uh, David and Auntie Claire continue on to their seats, and we go inside the tent for a veritable British invasion, Charlotte waking up Charlie. Uh, it quickly becomes a one, two, three, not of Brits, but of returning friends. Charlotte finds some guy wearing a hat. Hey, we've seen that hat before, and it's Daniel, who effortlessly explains slash reminds us the drive shaft will be playing with Daniel on stage. And the curious connections continue as David and Claire wander on up to table 23, ha-ha, to find Desmond grinning like a cat and Kate and Claire reunited, but unable to talk, as Dr. Chang starts the evening off, with Daniel and Driveshaft taking the stage. By the way, nice to see the return of Liam Pace as well. It's a very quiet, almost oddly paced, no pun intended, moment, where Daniel is just playing and the audience is listening. Then Charlie notices Claire, and it's a cinematographer's delight with slowly rolling close-ups that suggest building understanding and love and the possibility that just the sight of love can cause. Mm. Or it's baby time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to use the bathroom. I'll, I'll be right back. It feels intentionally, I'm sure, that we've been denied a moment just as it was about to happen. All the better to carry us across what just about likely would have been the end of the first hour of the show. Worry not, we'll carry on until the end of the act, though it should be noted that it's Kate who gets up to go help Claire. With that, back to the island, or rather, inside the source cave, there's a nice and unexplained touch of skeletons in the entrance. Then Desmond sees it, the source of the glowing light, the place to where all the water is flowing, and in what feels to be a very unsure scene, he steps in, and suddenly the lights are flashing, and he's bloodied and in pain and screaming. He seems to instinctively pull the plug, and then it's all black, the water all gone, soon to be replaced with fire and steam and heat. We've clearly descended into hell, without much more explanation than that. And do we need it? Some sort of 
metaphysical talk would be nice. But as I said in previous episodes, I am more than content with the idea that this island and its underlying mythology represent an earlier mystical truth that underpins life. I don't mean that literally, of course, that it it presents a truth for our life. But just as so many people accept religious views wholeheartedly, while understanding there is a human world on top of that, say, for example, God created the earth and the sky and the stars, but the Wright brothers made an airplane that occupies the sky, I think here the show is arguing for a similar mythology. We have the idea that goodness comes from this place, that the plug mediates the light and the dark, and that's it. Is there a science to it? Sure, on some level that the show doesn't want to explore, I'm sure that's the case, just as there's a quantum physics explanation with the Big Bang. There's also just the very accepted explanation of God said, let there be light, and there was light. If that's your belief, then that is the whole of the religious explanation, and you don't need more, while simultaneously you can ask science to still explain more. This is what the show is exploring, the let there be light point of view. It is as it is. And from a mythical, mystical, religious, faith-based point of view, that's all it's offering us, and I'm, I'm okay with that. As for the opposite of light, Smokey Locke, bathed in the red evil glow, declares, It looks like you were wrong. Goodbye, Jack. And with that, he ascends out of the cave. And having been hit by Jack, Smokey discovers that he can now be bloodied. Looks like you were wrong, too. Jack, struck by a rock, falls and loses consciousness, while our great villain, the unstoppable smoke monster now very human indeed, grabs his bag and runs off, skulking away. We will stop this week's podcast here with the impossible notion that with 58 minutes and 30 seconds left for the entire series, the show has once again surprised us. Smokey, now able to be killed, can be killed. Sure, he's on the run, Jack is woozy, but how in the world, I think we can imagine as we get to this act break, uh, can the show fill the last hour? And what a delicious hour ahead of us. With that, friends, let's take a look at Lostpedia, which uh, most of the good stuff shall be uh, reserved for next week's episode, but we do have have two good bits here. First, Boone's observation that he had difficulty getting Shannon back from Sydney is likely an inside joke at the difficulty in scheduling Maggie Grace to return for the final season, having had to already write her out of LAX Parts 1 and 2 because of her unavailability. Also from Lostpedia, the plug in the heart has markings on it, the clearest of which is some cuneiform script, a form of writing used for a very long time by different civilizations in the area that is now Iraq, notably the Sumerian language groups 
this coming from circa 5000 to 1000 BC. Just a nice little detail there speaking about the uh, the true age of the island. Again, I rather, I rather like the idea that uh, Mother was there for thousands and thousands of years herself and that she, uh, you know, perhaps she was the first or, or even even not. We're certainly meant to think that the island story is, is as old as humanity. It's uh, a rather nice thought indeed, even though the show isn't, uh, doesn't ever, you know, do some sort of island flashback with it being, you know, churned up from beneath the water, that kind of thing. Well, friends, let's look ahead to the next month or so of episodes. Next week will be, of course, episode 618, the conclusion of The End. The week after that, we will review the series' music, then do an episode on The New Man in Charge, then, on August 15th, the exit interview of this podcast will conclude. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm so, so happy. Here we are, uh, one hour and 21 minutes into this week, I think it probably was uh, best for all of us to uh, have split this episode in two. I, I, I probably keep bringing that up because I feel a tad guilty. Uh, I've been okay with it in other season finales where uh, the episode, the episodes have been split up formally, uh, either for home video or that sort of thing. But can you believe we're almost there? It uh, certainly, uh, certainly is coming fast. So with that, everyone, one final goodbye. Talk to you all again next week. Take care, as always. Bye-bye.